so the one thing I haven't figured out is uh, how to start the episode. Sometimes I'll say a corny intro, and then sometimes I record over that and just introduce people. But it always makes me laugh, and so I usually say, Hi, welcome to the Bonsai Wire podcast. Today, my guest is... Dylan Ferreira. And uh, Dylan and I have known each other for a very long time. Dylan used to work for Boone Monica TV part back in Hayward, I guess, right? Yeah, that was in Hayward, yep. And I have no idea how many years ago that was, but it was a long time ago. And since then, Dylan has taken a keen interest in growing material for bonsai, and he currently has a growing operation up in the California foothills. Yes. Tell us about the place. Yeah. Well, I think we met in 09, and that was the first Mm. BIB show that I'd ever been a part of. What brought you to a BIB show? Uh, I had taken an intensive with Boone when Mm. he was still here in Alameda. And so I just remember I walked into the show that evening and everybody had been there all day setting up and working and I was feeling a little bit awkward and out of place because I'm just walking in in the evening. And uh, you were one of the, like the first person I met, I think, and you were just automatically really nice to me and very kind. And uh, I think we've been friends ever since. Ever since, yeah. <laughs> so a mere 14 years or so. Yeah, it's been a while. That's been a while. That's awesome. And so um, we both over the years have helped out at Boone's. I used to work for Boone a long, long, long time ago, like back yeah. in the 90s, long time ago. The 90s? Oh, yeah. I met Boone in 93. Oh, man, that's a long time ago. That's when I started Bonsai. So long before <laughs> you went to Japan back uh-huh. in the day. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, before you went to Japan. Huh? Yeah. We're shaking our heads right now. That was a long time ago. <laughs> That's so long ago. So tell me about your operation. What do you got going now? Yeah, so uh, I've got a growing production operation. I grow bonsai in the field and uh, starts. And um, I'm currently growing on about acre and a half, though I have up to about three acres. And I have many, many trees out in the ground in the field. How long have right you had now. this operation? I settled in in late 2020 and then, yeah, so yeah, about the end of 2020 and uh, it was really hard. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today because I know a lot of people (laughs) talk about, we all know what it's like growing in containers. A lot of people dream about growing in the field and you've done a lot of both. And so you know what's hard about both of those probably. Yes. Yes. In certain ways, growing in containers is harder. It's harder to get good, strong, healthy, vigorous growth. I've, that's been my experience with it. And then in the ground trees, they just, they grow so well, so vigorously all across the board, just about, but it's a lot harder to set up a big field with irrigation and go for baskets and mulch and get the whole infrastructure set up. And then managing it once it's all set up, it's, it takes a lot of work. And so Dylan used to have a similar operation over in Point Ray Station. That was, was that the first full-on bonsai nursery facility you'd set up? Yeah, my nursery has gone through many iterations, starting in my grandparents' backyard in Calistoga <laughs> in nice. the mid-1990s. And um, then it was in Richmond, California for a while at my aunt and uncle's house. And then once I finally finished university and doing all of my educational program and doing a little bit of foreign travel, I came back 
to the bay and uh, lease some ground out in Point Reyes Station. And it was a, a hobby, quote unquote. It was just for fun, quote unquote. But You still had a day job at the time. Yeah. Yeah. When I first got the place out in Point Reyes Station, I was unemployed because that was about 08, 09, when yeah. the big um, financial collapse happened. So I was blissfully unemployed for a while and I had all the time in the world to work on it. And then, yeah, then I got a job and was kind of spread out all over the Bay. And I remember you having no time for anything back then because you were driving all over for different jobs and then trying to make the nursery work. Yes, I was gainfully employed. um, And then I was doing independent landscaping and landscape horticulture for a while. So yeah, I was constantly on the road between my nursery and uh, customers' houses and Boone's house and Hayward. And so that teaches one how to rely on an irrigation system. Yes. It's an exercise in trust, <laughs> majorly. Was that trust ever betrayed? So many times. <laughs> so many times. <laughs> about an hour ago, we were talking about even more examples of how to this day the betrayal continues. Oh, it's, it's amazing. One of my fields right now is telling you, um, I have spots that are just like soggy, 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 sopping wet. And, um, and then I have other spots that are just bone dry and the places that are bone dry are literally right next to the sprinkler head. It just boggles my mind. Is the soil just that much different from pocket to pocket? I don't know if it's a soil issue. I think it's more of a coverage issue. Oh, interesting. How so? You know, I think perhaps certain systems or certain lines of my irrigation system, even down to particular heads, maybe throwing over and away too far. Oh, interesting. Like throwing the water over the trees, even though they're not very high up. And even though I have head-to-head coverage, it still is just... And so whether the wind hits a little bit or if it's not adjusted a little bit or the soil's a little... Like any of those little things or all of them together add up. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that doesn't over an entire acre, acre and a half. That doesn't sound annoying at all. <laughs> and like twenty feet away, I'll take a step, and it's like <laughs> squishy water squishing under my foot. It's just yeah, and it gets toasty where you live. Like what? What are them? What has a hot week looked like for you this year so far? July was pretty hot. Um, lots of days over ninety-five degrees. A few days over a hundred degrees. And the place where my nursery is, is fairly exposed and it's kind of in a weird area that's influenced by the American River, Mm. yet it's very open to the west and south. And so it just gets windy and breezy. It's windy every day out there. Oh, interesting. And it's hot on top of that. (laughs) So things dry out quickly. And so how much more forgiving is it having stuff in the ground than it is in containers? Once things are rooted in to the ground and to the surrounding medium, it, it can be quite forgiving. But if things are not rooted out yet, it's it, they can dry out just as easily as any potted plant can. Oh, interesting. Yep. So forgiveness is only forgiveness to a point. Yes. If the plants have just been planted, then it, there's no forgiveness at all. 
And so describe how you, do you do different approaches to planting the ground or is pretty much, do you have a recipe for most everything that's planted? Well, it always changes. There's always some new way to experiment with. Right now I am um, using this method where I plant starts in a square or round uh, pond basket. Sort of like the guy in Japan who we saw. What was his name? Onuma. Onuma. Yeah, that's right. He had all of his things in colanders. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of am stealing from him a little bit. But um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll put starts in a pond basket, fill them up with uh, my standard potting mix, and then put them out into the field. And out in the field, I have gopher baskets, metal gopher baskets that I make by hand. Um, I have them lined out and spaced out and everything. And then, so I'll plant into, I'll put the, the, the pond basket into the gopher basket and then mulch around it. Do you have to make your own gopher baskets or are those viable? No, I make them all. And that's just out of chicken wire? Uh, hardwood cloth, half inch hardwood cloth. Oh, the hardwood cloth. Okay. Yeah. So I bought a big guillotine cutter and a pneumatic, uh, it's like a stapler. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I cut all the pieces. I've cut all the, the bottoms and sides out. and I. That must take forever. Oh, yeah. It's, it takes forever. How many years do you get out of those baskets? Well, the first batch of wire I bought was complete garbage. That uh, It rusted like right away. Oh. So, yeah, I have to replace all those ones. But a good quality galvanized hardware cloth you can get. I had some at my original place out in Point Reyes Station that were like around 10 years old. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah, they can last. I just can't imagine how long that would take to make all those baskets. Because I remember Point Reyes Station, you did some individual's baskets, but you did some entire bed. So there'd be yeah. a row of yeah. that. A lot of digging. Yeah. I let and, my shovel operator's license expire. I can't operate a... <laughs> Not allowed to do it that way. No. <laughs> I got to experience what it's like to dig some of those trees when Dylan was moving oh, away yeah. from the Point Reyes station. Um, actually, Lauren and I went out there and dug up a whole bunch of plants up there, like yeah. the waning days of the nursery. And yeah. It's amazing. The roots get outside of that uh, chicken wire or whatever the stuff was up there. And uh, you just you kind of can't dig through that stuff unless you dig up the entire wire and the entire row all the way at once. And so either you do a lot of loppering of the big roots or you uh, unearth the entire row all at the same time. Yeah. It, it, it sets a boundary for the gophers. They can eat the roots up to a certain point. Root pruning. Yeah. It's free root pruning. And uh, yet there'll be enough roots left for the plant to be able to survive and um, regrow new roots. Have you ever farmed where there haven't been gophers? <laughs> At, where I, when I lived in Calistoga, we didn't have a gopher problem there. And nice. I had trees in the ground up there and they did really well. Nice. Yeah, but everywhere else has gophers. <laughs> I just can't imagine how much harder that would make. Because I know a lot of people ground growing and they don't deal with gophers that much. <sighs> yeah. Probably hard to imagine. It's one of the worst things. For ground growing. And there's tons of gophers up in Placerville. And the the earth is so hard there, isn't it? It's highly variable. Uh, but okay. um yeah, the place is packed with gophers. Oh man. 
but yeah, the areas where it's really rocky, I don't see them as much as where it's more loamy and arable. And wonderfully fertile. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That sounds about right. Well, the thing is, when you plant a field, whatever sort of agriculture you're doing, whatever crops you're growing, you're taking away the, the grasses and forbs and you know tree seedlings and things like that that are existing there, their food, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you're replacing it with a bunch of soft, tender, <laughs> delicate plants. Not a super surprise. Yeah. So you're kind of taking away their food and offering up ice cream or dessert or something. Yeah, and no one's ever uh, passed on the ice cream. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> no, it's impossible. So kind of describe, so you've got the plant in uh, a <coughs> colander, and then you've got it in this uh, basket, mm-hmm. and then what do you do with it? I'm calling, I call it a no-dig system, but it's really a minimal dig system. I, I put down probably like around 8 or 9 or 10 inches of mulch. On the ground. Um, so what I do is I put the gopher basket on the surface of the earth. I put the pond basket in the gopher basket, and then I mulch all around the gopher basket and inside of the gopher basket. So it's kind of like a Russian doll or a Russian egg. Not a Russian doll, a Russian egg. How many years have you been doing it that way? Have you been doing it that way the whole time pretty much? or No. In Point Reyes Station, I just put plants straight into the gopher baskets. And I think that's the better way to go because I would backfill the baskets with earth and then mulch over them. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to stop using the gopher baskets, the pond Pond baskets. baskets. Even though it's really convenient and really, it's pretty useful in certain ways. So we have to change your soil media to then not fall through the... um... Hardware fabric, the hardware cloth? That's not so much of a problem. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It'll, whatever growing medium I switch to, I'm thinking about using something like uh, um, lava and bark or something. I, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but it, that stuff should filter through the bottom of the gopher basket pretty easily mm-hmm. and fill in that void down there. And then I'll just backfill the, the whole thing. Oh, you're right. If you plan it to where some falls through then you yeah. have no void underneath yeah. there otherwise you'd have to have everything perfectly flat yeah. the odds of getting that right in your homemade baskets let alone in the digging ground below that's just that's a lot of ground that, that'd be ridiculous yeah. yeah but i really like using the pond baskets because i can position the the roots exactly the way i want them mm-hmm. and i can manipulate them and backfill in such a way that I, I get the roots to be exactly the way that I want them. And so that'll be the big thing you're then paying attention to as you switch to the new system to see if you get the same, if you have the same control over the roots or the same happiness with how the results turn up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you done much digging stuff up after a few years and putting it back in the ground? Or is it more like give it a few years and then we're done? In Point Reyes station, I did a midway digging. Mm-hmm. I dug things about two, two and a half years through the production cycle and did root work on so many trees, probably a couple hundred trees. Mm -hmm. And I got really good results doing that. And so right now, whatever I dig sells. So I'm not really having the, the opportunity to replant, which is, which is okay right now. The 
main reason, I guess, to do that would be if you want to start bringing larger trunks to the market, something like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. And so if you have a particularly large batch or you're beyond what the market's going to bear for a certain product, then you could just dig them all up and save your favorites, put them back in the ground yeah. and give them another two years. Yeah, and depending on how hard of a, a root pruning session it is, it might or might not be a good idea to put things back out on the field where... Oh, good point. It's it's harder to modify the environment out in the, out in the field. I use lots of shade houses up there mm-hmm. because it's so hot and dry in the summer. But um, for things like crab apples, maybe Japanese maple, they get pretty serious root work. I'd probably want to put them in Anderson flats or pots and keep them in the nursery, maybe even possibly a greenhouse. where and For a whole season? Or a whole year, I mean? Uh, for a whole growing season, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Get them, you know, get them healthy. And so you can correct more flaws that way, make sure they get reestablished after that repotting, and then drop them in the ground when they're kind of off and running again? Yeah, it's more like giving them a, a spa day and pampering them mm-hmm. and... After doing serious work on them, just making sure that the environment is as benevolent as possible. Have you got much feedback from the trees you sell about people's success with them? Like, is there ever too much root work or do they tend to just grow when people get them when you sell them right out of the field? I haven't had any complaints. So I'll take that as good news. Do you, how often do you change your email address? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Every other month. No. New, new strategies, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm trying to do I'm trying to do right by I try to do right by my customers and if there are problems, I guarantee my trees and with the caveat of oh, if your irrigation system failed or there was a major pest attack, I, I take care of my customers as best I can. So for those who don't know, um, during the last Pacific Bonsai Expo, one of my displays included a Shoheen Itoigawa juniper that yeah. Dylan grew at this Point Reyes farm. Yeah, I'm really proud of, of his. that. And, uh, and actually, I dug that tree out from yep. the farm. It was like one of the last ones that yep. was left there at the farm. And it had been wired two times from mm-hmm. the field to the show. Now, it's still got a long ways to go. There's a lot mm-hmm. of work to do on that tree, but... Um, I would love to see so many more just like that. I'm working on it. I have a whole bunch of uh, shimpaku in the ground. Excellent. What do you think the top species are you got right now? So I know you've got some shimpaku. I know you've got some pines. I love deciduous. And so I've gone big on a dwarf Japanese maple that is, it's an unnamed variety. It's super duper flexible. It's not brittle and it's vigorous and you can fertilize the heck out of it. And it still maintains pretty darn short internodes. They thicken fast. I just love this variety. And um, so I have quite a few of those going. A lot of tridents. Bunch of styrax are going to be coming out of the oh, ground this excellent. year. Yeah. Good. And um, I'm interested in doing slightly odd varieties. Like I'll focus on things like Japanese maple and trident maple. Mm-hmm. And the you know the the well known desirable varieties, but I also like to grow Stewardia and Styrax and Oriental Liquidambar and um, Snake Bark Maples. I have a few of those going. Oh, fine. Uh, Star Magnolia, which not that easy to come by. They're not uncommon, but they're not. 
No, there's no obvious source for those other than a nursery yeah. specimen. It just happens to look good. You can see, you can find them in the landscape around here easily enough, mm-hmm. but um, as bonsai, I think. I'd love to see more as bonsai. I yeah. only know of one nice magnolia bonsai around here. I think I might know who it is, whose it is too. But yeah, um, exactly, beautiful tree. I've got um, another magnolia, magnolia levifolia. It's a, hmm. it's a, it's more of a shrub type species or small tree. It's, it has smallish leaves, small flowers, nice bark, easy to grow. So things like that that I think um, are suitable for Probably the art. Great to see those new species because we just don't have people growing lots of those things. Yeah. Are you still doing the crab apples? Many crab apples. I have the Hal's crab apple. Uh-huh. The um, what's the common one? Seaboldii, the Seabold's crab apple. Yeah, Seabold's crab. The um, Hubei crab apple. Mm-hmm. I grow mostly species, not as many varieties. Mm-hmm. And I have a batch of ume coming on in the next couple of years, which I'm. So what are you doing style-wise with those? Those are those are those can be tricky. What are you doing with which them? the ume? Yeah, like what what forms you kind of try to grow them into? I tend to make things pretty bendy, mm-hmm. probably more bendy than they ought to be. But <laughs> I like bendy trees, and it seems like a lot of people do also. Uh-huh. Um, style-wise, you know, mostly. Uh, slant style. Mm-hmm. That's just such an easy thing to default to. And then once in a while when they happen to work out in other styles, you go with that? Yeah, I've tried doing cascade styles with a bunch of different things. It's really hard to it's get really them to thicken. It's really hard. Yeah. For very obvious reasons. But yeah. it's really, it, it takes some conscious effort to make yeah. a good cascade from yeah. scratch. I have some calicarpa in the ground. Oh, it's a beauty berry. Beauty berry. The purple one or the white? Purple berries. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've got some of the white, actually. They've been fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I like to get into the more interesting varieties. I have Styrax Formosanus, uh-huh. which is closely related to the Japanese, but the leaves are a little bit smaller, and it has so many, so many flowers. It's very floriferous oh i really am looking forward to seeing that and they're the right scale too are you growing what sizes are you growing these all to be it's going to wind up being shoheen to medium size make lots of shoheen yeah i know i know (laughs) well the bases of these things are the parts that thicken the soonest yeah and fastest so it's kind of a natural segue into showing size it is that you can turn those around a little faster in fact you can actually afford to grow a little slower one thing that i find the least of when people are growing shoheen is to grow more than one section of trunk people put it in the ground mm. they'll give you one section of taper yeah. and then say okay we're done yeah it's and it's just a section of taper with some twigs for branches and that's your good starting point but the better yeah. way is grow that first section of trunk for a couple of years cut it way down, grow a second section of trunk so you have some tape or some interesting movement or even do it more slowly and have multiple sections. But I find that that's, in spite of my ideas and plans for a tree, that's (laughs) often what has to happen anyhow. Oh, you end up just resetting? Well, I can't use that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the part of the trunk that I had wired and bent um, has gotten reverse taper or... Mm the tree didn't commit to that part of it. So I have no choice but to cut back and restart. And that's kind of the, 
the whole adventure of it. Because <laughs> it seldom works out the way, exactly the way I think it's going to. And that's not necessarily a problem. It's more a reflection no. of how good our guesses were up front than it is about the results of the process. Yeah. As long as you're getting where you want to go, that's yeah. kind of the main thing. Yeah. And uh, I really love the history of all of my plants, their life histories, and where did this plant come from? Um, How did I start this plant? Was it a liner? Was it a seedling? Was it a cutting? Was it something I dug out of the ground in the mountains or something? And then the satisfying part is setting something in motion and then following it through the years and then circling around back around five, six, seven years later and seeing that it's become something beautiful in spite of me. (laughs) How do you do that with hundreds, let alone thousands of trees? I just, do you write notes? Do you take pictures? You just remember everything. They get into my mind and there's like a database of these things in my mind. And I recognize individuals. That's so cool. Especially if you're coming back around two, three, four times a year. You get to know the plants. Well, and you touch all of your trees minimum once or twice a year, I, I'd expect. Yes, depending on the stage of development. So when they're fresh, freshly planted, I have to be on top of them. And mm-hmm. so I have to have my hands on them. Or if you've bit. got wire on it, you need to be keeping track. Dewiring, of yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a tough batch of Chinese elms right now that. Just went through dewiring. Dewiring is can be hard sometimes, but um, have you found someone to hire to help with that? Because that's just a job, boy. I've got one person who wants to help me out who lives up in Placerville. Um, I don't know if sitting on the ground in hundred degree heat <laughs> in midday, holding on to hot, burning hot wire cutters, <laughs> is really somebody is somebody's cup of tea. But but it's yours, huh? Yeah. Well, oh, the glamour of being a grower. Yeah, yeah. Working Standing out in the sun in midday is for mad dogs and Englishmen. I'm neither of those, so. <laughs> Once many, I grower. How many of your trees you think are under uh, shade right now? What percent of the. Under? At least 50%. Okay. I, I have more trees under shade than in full sun. Okay. So more than 50%. Which species can handle the full sun up there? <clears throat> Because knowing it's sun and wind. Cork oak, trident maple, conifers, such as black pine and um, chimpaka juniper, Chinese elm, Chinese quince. Mm-hmm. Those are good full sun plants. Uh, the oriental liquidambar, cork elms. There's quite a few. Would you leave those in the sun in containers or would you put all those in the shade in a container? Deciduous material, I'd probably keep under shade if they're in pots. Uh, coniferous material, I feel pretty good about keeping in full sun. Oh, really? So yeah. full sun yeah. with wind for junipers and pines, no problems where you are? Yes, but wow. you cannot lose track of watering. Yeah. How many times a day would you have to water something in a container up there? <clears throat> I do one cycle per day. I just do one long cycle in the morning, oh, okay. and it usually holds things pretty well. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it, I find that if I do more than one cycle, um, things just get too wet. And that's a problem for path- spreading pathogens and so forth. If it's well over 100 degrees, then I'll do multiple cycles. Mm-hmm. But that means that I have to be there. 
do you ever do uh foliar um just hose the place down to cool it off when it gets hot or do you just yeah i'll do that uh-huh, i'll just, just walk spray around with things the hose. down yeah not necessarily suck them too hard exactly just to let the evaporation kind of cool things down yeah 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 that sounds like that would take a little while if you've got an acre well, the nursery is not that big. The, the The part that I call the nursery is consists of two shade houses and 50-foot shade houses and um, one fully exposed area. Mm-hmm. So, so the, that part of the, the operation isn't very big. Oh, that's good. And it's completely packed with plants right now. <laughs> Do you still have the tropicals and the odds and ends that you used to have? Because you love rare plants. I know you're a sucker for odds and ends. I wish none of those things survived. Oh no. Um, Plasterville is cold in the winter and it snows there. It's, <laughs> it has snowed there every year that I've been there. So, um, no, it's, it's no point race station, North Bay or East Bay maritime climate. Oh, that's kind of a heartbreak. It's also a burden lifted. Yeah. <laughs> Because I remember there were a few really stressful cold snaps where you were trying to keep after things. Yeah, and I don't really have a proper greenhouse at the moment, so there was just no way that it was going to work out. I lost plants that I've had for decades mm-hmm. in the winter. It's just <laughs> plants come and go. What can I say? Yeah, you make some more. <laughs> have you? Uh, what percentage are you? Like, how much wiring did you on average? Are you doing? Are some things you just cut, clipping and growing, or are you trying to get some bends in almost everything? I'm doing a probably equal amount of both oh. clip and grow. I find that, for example, wiring cork oak is just a non-starter. It the response that I get for them is that they abandon the part that I wire. That's super common. And it's really frustrating. And so I'm not wiring certain species anymore. And I'm trying to make more natural, oh. upright uh, trees. So I'm more interested in clip and grow and and seeing what Onuma is doing and mm-hmm. our buddy in Japan. Tons of clipping. Yeah. So I was pretty well inspired by seeing what he does. He builds his trees kind of from the inside out where he kind of lets them blow out, cuts them to nothing, lets yeah. them blow out, cuts them to nothing. He's just keeping quarter inch, half inch, mm-hmm. inch every time he prunes mm-hmm. with a few exceptions like the junipers. Most other things just came way back. Yeah. And so he was making like these fat little cones out of pretty much all of his deciduous Everything. material. Yeah. Crab apples, maples, mm-hmm. you name it. So I want to do more of that. Um, but I also, like I said, doing something like wiring, um, a whip or a liner or some young seedling and then following up with it every year and then getting five, six, seven years into it and seeing like, wow, the (laughs) curves really set and it looks really cool. That's gotta be super satisfying. It's so satisfying. It's so satisfying. And then I sell it and stick it in a box and (laughs) do it again. So yeah, a lot of wiring. Um, I wire the whips the first, or they're probably like two or three year old whips. Mm-hmm. At that point, put them out. Hopefully, they establish that first season, and I can dewire them the first season. And you've had some good luck starting with liners. 
So you don't have to do all your own propagation, isn't that right? Yes, I have gotten a lot of liners. I, I like to get liners out of Oregon, mainly for things that I haven't figured out how to propagate myself, such as Carpinus, which uh, continually el- eludes me. I just can't have, get those For whatever reason, haven't figured that out, huh? The liner nurseries do it. I don't know what they're doing. I think I just need to call them up and say, hey, what the heck are you doing? Could you please tell me? <laughs> exactly. But um, the thing I like about liners is that I can get unusual varieties and varieties that I struggle to propagate. Uh, what I don't like about liners is that the root balls yes. are the shape of the cell or pot that they grew in. That's what I was going to ask. So many of the liners I've started with have a tap root that at best will wind around the size of that mm-hmm. cell. And so yeah. how do you convert that one awful root into anything that we want? Does it take more repots in those early years? It takes a combination of root work and one or two more repots. So you have to grow them out, you know, one or two seasons longer. When I grow my own seedlings, they're just in open Anderson Flats. And so the roots are much, much easier to, to handle and get going in the right direction. That makes sense. But I, for all of my starts, everything before I put it out in the field, everything has at least one round of root work, mm-hmm. if not more. So I don't want to put anything in the field that doesn't have good roots um, or roots that are going to be hard to, dif- uh, to work with. That is probably the number one bias I have when it comes to growing is I'm so tired of bad roots. Yeah. And in my mind, no amount of time is too much if it's necessary to correct rootage before you move on mm-hmm. to that accelerated growing of putting something in the ground and getting the trunks big. I see it as being even more important than the trunk, just about. It's going to set the shape of the base of the trunk. Yeah, yeah. The trunk. The trunks are more plastic and... Um, if you don't like the truck trunk, there's you can always cut back mm-hmm. or you know graft. There's always a workaround. But with deciduous species, it, you yeah. have some flexibility. But so many species, you get you're stuck with whatever roots you create, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, vegetatively propagated plants, cuttings and so forth, often come out with pretty well distributed roots. Mm-hmm. And um, if they don't turn out well, then those plants either get uh, put into groups for for multi-stem plantings Mm. or become stock plants or garden plants or they wind up in the big compost heap in the sky. Have you been doing a lot of those kind of group plantings? Yes, because of you. You inspired me to do that. It's pretty much the obvious thing to do with when you either have too much of something or mm-hmm. a bunch of flawed things that you can't bear to get rid of all of them. Yeah, it's so hard to get these things created and yeah. then have to throw them away, although I've gotten pretty callous <laughs> about it. <laughs> At some level, there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that inspired me, you made those uh, multi-stem pine groups that I thought oh. were really neat. And then um, Bjorn did a really cool thing about uh, grouping seedlings together on his YouTube channel a few years back. So yeah, they came out great. I thought, well, yeah, okay, that's what I'm going to do now. Yeah, make so, some of those. Yeah. What do you think you'll be releasing? Um, so I know this coming uh, winter you're looking to dig a bunch of stuff. What mm-hmm. What will the, um, do you do that starting in the fall or do you start in January, February? You know, when's your, when's your 
key when's the bulk of your digging season uh it really kicks off in december when things really go dormant okay so i'll be having quite a few trinet maples some dwarf japanese maples quite a few standard japanese maples Mm -hmm. uh japanese styrax a few of the oriental liquid ambar some stewardia monadelpha the tall stewardia Mm -hmm. maybe some chinese quince some a few cork elms a pretty good assortment that sounds like a fantastic assortment yeah yeah it's exciting so those will have been in the ground two three years probably since summer of 2021 that's right because i remember it wasn't when you were moving in it was that next year you were super scrambling to get everything planted i remember that that was a very stressful time for you planting in summer that was not great (laughs) not great yeah i remember hearing about that but um and it was really scary too because i didn't know if my system my double basket system was going to work out that's right. It was a hypothesis back then. I remember you drawing me yeah. the pictures of how yeah. you were going to do all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing about mulch is that it's a high carbon um, material. Mm-hmm. So I was worrying like, oh, geez, am I going to have nitrogen debt? Is the carbon going to soak up uh, all that nitrogen? Is it just going to be a... Feeding the microbes that break down the organic stuff. Yeah, but that next full growing season, everything just took off and it was such a relief such a relief (laughs) it's scary (laughs) well yeah it's that's what's so crazy about growing is i mean all bonsai is a gamble but when you're growing it's you're it's a cast of the die yeah you know you just throw the dice out there and well let's see what this year brings and this is my living too yeah so it's like is this gonna work is this gonna be a disaster i don't know yeah yeah that's welcome to farming 101 (laughs) right And I know you've got a bunch of stuff that's not just bonsai that's coming out of the ground this year. I cannot help myself. I grow all sorts of plants for all sorts of purposes, minus uh, cannabis. I don't have anything to do with that. But um, I've just had an exposure to a an exceptionally wide breadth of plants mm-hmm. in my career. I've worked at uh, Botanical Garden and have done horticulture all over the Bay and have been to a few places in the world so if um i just can't resist beautiful plants and um i can't resist being in a beautiful environment and that's kind of what it's all about but um i have lots of plants for kusemono mm-hmm. um i have impatiens omiana hosta montana diasporum viridescens and i don't know the common names to any of these plants are these things you sourced from nurseries or just have been propagating or i have just been accumulating plants since i was a teenager so and so when they have good and you're good at tracking the names i guess yes so if they have good characteristics for saying accent plant you just keep propagating yeah i'm always looking for stuff that could be good for bonsai like Uh an interesting slightly different species or kusemono and um so yeah, I have lots of things f- that I think would be good for kusumono or accent plants. And I have lots of pyrosias right now, too. Oh, the, excellent. The, the ferns. And um, I have a dwarf uh, azalea-type rhododendron that I think would make a fantastic accent plant. It's oh, a nice. Creeping, uh, a creeping, kind of sprawling species. Does it flower? It does flower, and it has standard-sized mm. flowers. Oh, fascinating. So it's 
this dwarf little plant, but it has regular sized flowers. It's <laughs> kind of cool. They're beautiful, brilliant red. I absolutely adore that species. Um, I adore all my plants, really, but <laughs> I can't help it. I just cannot not grow. It's a case where loving plants, <clears throat> it's not that it makes it harder, it makes it possible. Yes. Because if you don't love the plants, it's just too much work otherwise. And it's boring. Well, there's that too. Production work is not is rarely the most scintillating oh, work. Oh, yeah, yeah. No one loves, hey, I got another day of propagation today. I've got to pot up 350 uh, ajuga reptans. No, I don't think so. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> Do you have a good dwarf ajuga? Those can be great. No, for, uh, I will not touch that. <laughs> <laughs> there's th- there are most things I won't touch. It's like you can go to uh, Home Depot and get that. So yep. that's the stuff that I turn away from. And if you like that stuff, that wonderful. Awesome. But I have more unusual things. Stuff you're less likely to see at a big box store. Exactly. Exactly. Now, where are you going to be making all these things available this fall? Well, um, I would love it if people would come up to my nursery uh-huh. in Plasterville. How will they get in touch with you or find out where the nursery is? My email uh-huh. address is cedar rose nursery at gmail.com it's c-e-d-a-r-r-o-s-e n-u-r-s-e-r-y at gmail.com that's like writing on a chalkboard i don't even know if i can do that yeah i should have made it a little bit shorter but um that's the name of my nursery cedar rose nursery cedar rose nursery and i have many many starts i also have lots of garden plants um, unusual garden plants. Of course, they have to be unusual. Okay, so um, do you think you'll have a website up by then, or will it be will getting in touch with you at some point between now and fall the, be the best way to do it? Right now, the best way is by email or text. Okay. Should I? Okay. And so that would be, uh, that sounds perfect. We'll, we'll share that info. I there. recently got on to the Bonsai Nut uh-huh. um, forum because a smart to- person told me that I should go announce myself on there and the thread is called new bonsai nursery and so oh cool you can if you pick up on that thread my contact information is there too oh great okay so there will be ways to to get and get a hold of all these things i have an inactive website right now it's cedarrosenursery.com yeah but if you go there it's it's a ghost town it's a zombie website i'm um gonna have a real adult make a real website for me hopefully this month or by fall well we'll just have to chat again around sometime when that happens yeah 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 i'll let you know so one thing i've been curious about is when you're just starting out doing all these growing operations you probably have one set of questions at any given time there's could be an infinite number of questions but i imagine that as you learn whether from experience good or bad and or research and or talking to people you figure out a bunch of stuff and so i'm curious what are the questions you have about what in the world you, or like just what questions do you face on a daily basis, say right now, this time of year? As in, are you trying to solve health problems? Are you just deciding what to mm-hmm. grow? Are you trying to prioritize your time? Like what are the questions that needle your brain as you go through the work week? Or do you just have it all figured out and you're like, well, yeah, today it's a Tuesday, yeah. so on Tuesdays I... Every day is different. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think about irrigation every day and mm-hmm. check on things, especially on Mondays when I've been away for a couple of days. 
A big question right now I'm working with is how do I get my irrigation coverage to be more consistent? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also thinking now about what am I going to plant this coming dormant season? Now's probably the time to start sourcing that material and or figuring out how you're going to source it when the time comes. Yes, and getting an inventory of what I have that's ready to go. And um, this winter, there's going to be a big harvest, so I'm going to have lots of space opening up. And so I need to be thinking about remulching that air, those areas and making sure I have enough plant material to re, repopulate those areas. And then I need to figure out if um, I need to expand again. This will be the first time you've kind of replanted that same area Mm -hmm. on this property. So that'll Mm -hmm. be interesting to see Mm -hmm. how you want to treat or till or fill or whatever, or just drop baskets in the same holes again, you know? Yes, it's going to be, everything's going to have to be ripped out. All the baskets are going to have to be redone. Um, But one thing to note is that there's been beautiful mulch decomposing on this, these areas Mm. for the last several years, getting water every day in summer. And the, the soil is just a dream. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, will you just be pouring mulch on top of that or will you be incorporating that into the soil? So the roots have more access to that or I don't think I'm going to do any incorporation. Uh I don't do any tillage, but just um, keep it all on top. Yeah. I'm going to, I might dig some up and backfill baskets with it. Mm -hmm. Maybe just because it's so wonderful, but uh, I'm definitely going to be adding lots of new mulch too, regardless. Well, because it sounds like what you're doing is just creating a, it, it's going to be over time, a deeper and deeper bed of better and better um, kind of top dressing, really. It's like a gigantic pot. <laughs> yeah. It's like a huge blanket. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's kind of cool. It seems like that'll pay benefits in some way, shape or form because that'll be super rich my yeah. uh, diversity of microbes and there's uh, good nutrient regulation there's good uh water holding capacity there's good uh microbial life i get yeah, tons should, of mushrooms it seems like it'd be way more stable after a while once all that stuff's broken down yeah. it seems like it'll be a natural and very just broad healthy sustainable mm-hmm. kind of yeah. world because when it creates itself that's always the more stable way to do it as opposed to yeah. radical changes of things yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's 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 really nice. The stuff that I put down the first year is mostly decomposed and um the soil is wonderful, but the weeds now have managed to get a foothold in those areas. <laughs> oh, that's right. How in the world are you going to manage poa annua, all your weeds, like whatever you happen to get? Like I that. would be happy if all I had were poa annua. I've I think got... you just keep it called a lawn, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'll just remulch everything and, uh, it'll be back to set the clock back to zero. So you think that'll suppress oh, well yeah, enough? For sure. Oh, for sure. great. How yeah. deep now, how deep are these layers when you're doing the mulches across the field? I was doing like four or five inches, but now I'm going eight to 10 inches. And you can walk through that easily enough? Yeah. It, it all packs down. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Especially when the, <clears throat> pardon me, when you get, uh, during the planting phase, you're going back and forth with a wheelbarrow and it kind of. That's true. Um, um, just makes traffic. A path, yeah. Did you ever put down landscape fabric at all between the rows, or did you literally no. just throw the mulch on top and that did it? Yeah. God, that's awesome. I do have some sp- uh, patches of poison oak that <clears throat> no amount of mulch or herbicide will eliminate. It has to be pulled by hand. But I get really good weed suppression with uh-huh. the amount of mulching I do. 
except for field bindweed. That's the bane of my existence. That's the gnarly one, huh? You can't get rid of it. There's just nothing to do about that. You can knock it back for the season, and that's about it. It's always going to be back the next season. So it'll just grow on top of the rough mulch, the fresh mulch? It grows through the mulch. Oh, gosh. And then the the fact that I'm adding so much water, there's so much water hitting the ground, it just loves it. And it'll, it'll, it'll smother trees, so it's really a pain in the neck. But luckily, it's only in one area. So. And that's just all manual mitigation? <clears throat> uh, ideally, it would be, but... It's a, it's really a combination. I have to use IPM practices on that, uh-huh. integrated pest management practices on that. Oh, what a hassle. <laughs> yeah, it's always something. Yeah, I studied weeds in university. That was kind of my jam because <laughs> I studied uh, uh, crop pest management, and I really took to the weed sciences, and so... I kind of have my favorite weeds that I like. I'll leave them alone, like uh, Salsify or Malva Neglecta or, um, you know, I have my ones that I have soft spots for, but field bindweed is not. It's not on that list. (laughs) Well, I noticed this whole time you haven't really talked about pathogens or pests. I mean, do you have big trouble where you are or have you created an environment where things are pretty happy? I have the main pest that I have right now is um, root aphids. Oh, the same. Which is super annoying. Yes. And they are, they seem to have a wide uh, selection of host plants. Which is interesting because researchers keep insisting that it's going to be one species per species, meaning one organism per type of plant. And that one will attack pines and one will attack this and one will attack that. Yeah. Well, with with some I, overlap here and there, like apparently the connection between the black pine and the Chinese elm will be the same stuff. Different parts of the life cycle will be on the leaves and elms right. and the roots of pines, for instance. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, but unless I have multiple of species of uh, root mealy and root aphids out there. Oh. But um, <clears throat> the root aphids came in with a certain batch of black pines from a certain person um a certain grower in alameda possibly no <laughs> somewhere else okay so i dodged that bullet yeah 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 um but there was a batch of batch of zoomy that had agrobacterium <laughs> that came from here so those had to you those got 86 yeah it was a shame too because i had a lot of time into them but uh that's an that's a really bad pathogen. To yeah. To Have you had subsequent problems with it or did you catch no. that in time? No. No, I got rid of all those plants. That's good. I still have two from that batch, actually. <clears throat> they were nice. Yeah. They flowered. They were precocious. They flowered young and fruited young. Did you keep the seeds from them or did you just totally? No, I have a different Seaboldiana oh, that cool. I'm working with. Good. That's pretty vigorous. But pathogen and insect-wise... It, I'm not having many problems. I do a little bit of prescriptive uh, fungicide application just because I'm, you know, I've grown in the, I've done a lot of growing in the Bay and um, verticillium wilt Mm -hmm. is a maple killer. And so I'm sensitive to that. I'm really worried about that, but it, I don't have a lot of pathogen trouble up there. Um, Even with some of the overly wet conditions. That's really nice. And I have things like surfed flies and praying mantises and mm-hmm. 
So I really don't prefer to spray insecticides unless I have to, which I kind of do now because I'm having the root aphids. Well, it's nice because you're in surrounding your farm is more wild territory, and so it's it's you're not surrounded by city like the way so many bonsai growers are and you're not exactly surrounded by full-on ag right where you are either it's more well there are a lot of old orchards really close by Mm -hmm. and so i do need to be careful about fire blight yeah yeah and uh, especially because i grow a lot of rosaceous material yeah and um the pseudomonas blight that's another one that's a gnarly one it's not as bad as fire blight but um that's I think a fire blight's kind of a do not pass go. It'll ruin a tree in a, in yeah. a hurry. So, yeah. And then I'm growing on old orchard land too. So I was I was worried that there would be pathogen issues, but so far so good. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. How are you fertilizing everything in the ground? I use just a high analysis uh, turf fertilizer, mm-hmm. that, and the price is right. And um, I just broadcast it at the beginning of the season. And then I also use... Is it time release or is it... No, not even. The time release is more expensive. Uh-huh. So I blast everything early in the season. That's not the right word. I fertilize everything <laughs> early season. And I don't have problems with burning in the field, mm-hmm. except for one crop was a little bit sensitive to it. Stewardia was, mm-hmm. but they they grew out of it. And... um and I use a lot of the iron sulfate. I get a lot of, I get a, lot, a really good response from. And are you doing the pelletized or the liquid of the iron sulfate? Nursery, I use the solids and the liquids. And the, out in the field, I use uh, the solids. I don't, liquids are, are kind of difficult to handle for large areas. So, oh, really? Yeah. I just don't have the. Um, I would have assumed you could just run it through a dosatron or something. And have I would it all need a line. big dosatron. Or a series, a bank of dosatrons. Yeah, yeah. That would be ideal. Someday. Someday. I'll get On it. the 2.0, 3.0, whatever, 10.0. Yeah. Yeah. When I have my property up in the Willamette Valley, I'll get it set up like that. Oh, there you go. So do you think it's the... Uh, so do you think you can get away with so little fertilizer because the... Um, do you think it's the mulch that's providing so much of the things the plant needs? Or I use a rate that's close to the top end of the recommended... Uh huh. Range, and I get pretty good growth out of but it. But you don't need to redo it during the season. That's the amazing part. If I like, I did uh, summer pruning on trident maples uh-huh. recently, and so I followed back through and re refertilized them. And anything that seems like it didn't respond well to the first dose of fertilizer, I will refertilize them. So it sounds like if you've got decent water and decent soil and decent weather things mostly take care of themselves mm-hmm. where you're not fertilizing constantly you're not spraying mm-hmm. constantly you're not even weeding that constantly it sounds yeah. like it sounds like the bigger problems are just how dang hard it is to set up an automated irrigation system yeah. and then the time to do the really time intensive bonsai work to get things wired and or pruned and or potted within the very narrow windows when that work has to happen on sometimes yeah yeah i would say that my uh potted stock needs a lot of attention (laughs) fertilizing pest management making sure that the environment is right for them dealing with weeds yeah i have um 
two rows of native willows grow up around my oh. container area. That mm-hmm. I call it the nursery. I don't know if I mentioned that already. Apparently, all you have to do with native willows is add water and they'll grow. And uh, I was ripping them out at first, but then I realized, oh, hey, these can be a, like a really nice windbreak. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they are. They're wonderful. And they've grown up really fast because they're fast growing. And there's a lot of water and fertilizer getting into the ground around the nursery. And uh, it turns out that they make millions of seeds mm. that carpet the place. And so all of my pots have a nice green carpet of willow seedlings. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just add water. I'm going to guess a carpet <laughs> of willow seedlings is slightly more than would be optimal. I uh, guess zero would be yeah. optimal yeah. and maybe one or two would be cute, but a full carpet in every container. And when one or two get away and really manage to grow, they'll take over the entire pot. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> So that was and wasn't the best decision to let those willows uh, yeah. take hold? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds kind Living of incredible. Learn. Have you been maintaining any of your bonsai bonsai in the last few years? You know, I just don't have time for it. It's a lot of time to put into a single plant. I really love doing it. Um, I feel like I learned a lot from you. Um, but my, that skill set, I never really fully developed that skill set, which is a little bit sad, but I found that I'm pretty good at growing trunks and making good roots. And that's where I've kind of slotted into this. Cause you definitely could do the work and you enjoyed it enough, but it didn't light you up the same way that the growing did. It did used to light me up, though, and it still does when I do have Well, I remember you used to come down here and help out all the time, and I could put anything in front of you, and even if it was a really slow, challenging project, be like, oh, yeah, okay, and then you would just start at one end and finish at the other. I loved doing the thinning work on the azaleas. Yeah, those big azaleas. You did fantastic work on those. That just came naturally to me. (laughs) And that does not come natural to everybody. And you're the one who taught me how to make a pad. So I owe that, thank you, that debt of gratitude to you. What in the world did I say? Make the angles between the branches more or less consistent. Ah. And you can make the branches all on the same level or on slightly different levels. Just depends on the plant. And make sure that the secondary and tertiary growth is alternating. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And there you have it. I had I'd had some priming before that, but you're the person who like really made me. Oh, what a kick! Get it. I I wonder what we were working on where we were doing that. There was this big juniper that I was working on for a customer. Ah, and you helped me to do it. That would do it because so that that's something that comes up a lot is you need the material that needs that kind of work mm-hmm. before you can learn that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I remember a lot of the trees you had four, five, six years ago, you had a lot of trunks, but yeah. you didn't have, it's like you had the primary branches, mm-hmm. but you didn't have enough secondary and tertiary, or you know those finer yeah. divided branches yeah. to work with to even teach yourself, how do you do the pruning? How do you do the wiring mm-hmm. to actually feel like you're in that kind of pad creation zone? Because mm-hmm. it just takes years of building up the density before it mm-hmm. really starts becoming a thing. Yeah, you have to add a lot before you can start subtracting. 
mm-hmm. and making decisions and creating pads and a lot of what comes out of my field my fields will not be quite at that level of readiness but things like stewardia that twig up really fast mm-hmm. they will be ready for that kind of work oh that's fantastic largely yeah so you're consciously setting some primary branches on those i'm my focus is to give people options uh-huh that's what i want to do i don't make a lot of big decisions pardon me i don't make a lot of small decisions on yeah these, that makes on sense. these things yeah, it's not an opinionated product. You're giving them the product and then letting the user yeah. take it from there. I'm giving them as many branches to work with as I can, a good trunk, and a good start to the Nabari. Which is kind of what we need, are more trunks out there. Yeah. So. Yeah, I always am kind of on the fence about how to think about different stages of development. There's trunk building, primary branch building, secondary branch building, mm-hmm. and then kind of the more and more refinement before you yeah. get to kind of maintenance. And yeah. There's really good cases you can make for, you know, if you were to cut those into different phases, where on that spectrum you make those cuts. But mm-hmm. whatever you do down the road, we need more trunks. And so feel free to make as many trunks <laughs> as you want. It, it's funny. The more the more uh, trees I get out in the field, the, the less time I have to fuss around with making twigs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's why more people are getting into growing right now because yeah. they're doing that same kind of math. And yeah. there is something fun. It's almost like there's more of a feeling of play when working with larger numbers of younger trees mm-hmm. because at no point is there big pressure for any one. And because you've got so many per batch, mm-hmm. well, let's try it this way. Let's mm-hmm. try it that way. Mm-hmm. And so... You're making yourself smarter. You're teaching yourself what the different approaches are. You're teaching yourself what does or doesn't work or doesn't and doesn't and doesn't in my case a lot yeah, of the time. Right. Well, um, that's, at least those are the things yeah. I've enjoyed about growing so much. Yeah. It, it's funny. The thing that really, really hooked me into bonsai was when I was in university and uh, all of my trees are over at my aunt and uncle's house in, up in Richmond. And I would go out into the yard and work on my trees, wire them, do the trimming, all the stuff like that. And I would just forget about everything else. Mm. It it put me in the zone. And that's when I realized this is what I'm meant to be doing. And it's fun. So, yeah, you can do that or you play with like, you know, 150 seedlings, like what you're saying. And the other thing that's funny is, well you're pretty much the one who taught me how to wire trunks, wire mm. whips really well. So another debt of gratitude. We did a lot of that. And, um, I find that, uh, I don't know if this is apropos or not. I might be getting off track here, but I find that I have to be in the right mindset mm. to do that. And it's not just an automatic thing. I have to like sit down with a big batch of seedlings crank out a few crappy ones, maybe break a few. I have to turn on essentially and warm up and then then I can get into a groove and really start making cool shapes. I think that's a thing. And I know some people have talked about right brain activities and left brain activities. Uh-huh. Left brain stuff we can just kind of turn on and be analytical all the uh-huh. time. Yeah. The kind of right brain stuff is where you get into that kind of flow mode. Yeah. And I think those initial wiring exercises are more of a flow state exercise where you're not consciously 
at 2.3 inches, I make a yeah, right. bend at, you know, 362 right. degrees to the northwest at 39 uh-huh. degrees. Like, <laughs> you can't do that. Like, I can't do that anyway. But you kind of start getting a feel for, okay, yeah. how's the wire going on? How's the material moving? Yeah. Oh, I know how not to do it. And so you just, you don't do it the right way. You do it another way. And then you yeah. start finding, identifying like, kind of unconsciously the patterns that are not yielding the bad mistakes. Eric yeah. and I have talked about this a lot. Right? Oh, okay. And it's absolutely hilarious because he's been in the position of trying to teach people how to do those initial wirings and, you know, non-bonsai people. Uh-huh. And it is, it's so fascinating how many ways there are to wire something wrong. It's <laughs> because it's not like there's a recipe for doing it right. It's uh-huh. just don't do all of these dumb things. Don't, well, don't do make, all the wrong things. Yeah. Don't make it look like a letter of the alphabet. <laughs> don't make it look like a shape a child would play with. Don't uh-huh. make it look... You know, there's all these simple things. Curly Q. Yeah. And yeah, so, okay, well, oh, look, I made a helix. Oh, great, a helix. And so how do you yeah, interrupt right. those patterns yeah. without making a loop-to-loop or without making a back and forth or without making it three-dimensional? And it is, I agree. I think of it as kind of a flow state. I will not start certain kinds of jobs unless I know I have the time for it up front. And that's why yeah. so many of the important jobs get undone in yeah. my garden because well i've got a water so i can do that whether yeah. or not i'm in a good mood i right. can fertilize either way i can weed yes, either way exactly repotting is a process and so i can repot yeah. any time of day yep. or night that's yep. just one of the few things i feel i can pull out of the back pocket but the more creative endeavors and it's funny even initial stylings of trees can be like that but then it's more like you're creating a painting yeah Production work on setting things is kind of its own exercise because uh-huh. it's only the purely creative yeah. act. It, yes. You're not you're not building a hole. When There's nothing to a tree, build off of. Exactly. When you style a tree, <laughs> you're building a hole and you're keeping multiple parts in mind. Yeah. Those initial uh, wirings in those early years are just pure abstract exercises. So I was going to ask: Do you ever have days where you just can't wire? You're just not in the right mood or not in the right frame of mind and yes and so what i've actually paid attention to over the years is wiring is an interesting activity where i think it's an awkward blend of you know right brain and left brain Mm -hmm. until you do it really frequently and you've internalized Mm -hmm. all the moves then you can just pull it out of your pocket Mm -hmm. but for people who are more periodic or sporadic wirers some days it's going to feel like there's nothing but kinks in the wire yeah yeah and so then what i've learned is (laughs) You know, how do you get into some kind of a rain man space where you recognize what's going wrong and back Mm. away from what those things are doing? If for whatever reason, you've got to crank out some small exercise. I mean, Mm. obviously, if you can postpone. Yeah. But if you can, it's like, okay, even when I'm doing this in a workshop with someone's tree, it's like, oh, could you help me with this bend? Okay. I walk over to the chair. First, I look at the tree. I adjust the height of the chair. I adjust mm-hmm. the height of the tree. I mm-hmm. get my posture totally relaxed. And so when literally everything's lined up, okay, now I'm in a position where yeah. I can bend. Because if I'm bending over or doing it awkwardly, right. I'll be off balance. I won't be as focused. I feel like I need to be fairly grounded mm-hmm. to do an intense bend or to make sure a sensitive branch is going to get yeah. attention. You know what's really fun is um, sitting on the ground for three hours straight in the heat. <laughs> And wiring and bending. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you the story about what Daisaku said to me when um, we're both good friends with Daisaku Namoto uh-huh. from Japan. I love and, that guy. Uh, I told him I was going to put some trees in the ground. I've told the story a bunch. I don't know if I ever told you. This is years ago. 
Um, <coughs> before I moved to my current garden, I said, oh, I was thinking of putting a few trees in the ground. He said, oh, okay, okay. Um, so uh, I guess that, you know, when it's in the ground, I guess you'll just have to lay down on your belly when you're kind of uh, picking a front and trying to find the best. So I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. I should probably space them out pretty far. I was like, okay, okay. Um, so I guess you'll get really good at wiring when you're on your belly and doing that. I was like, yeah, 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 good point. I'll have to really enjoy that. And then, so trees grow really fast in the ground. And so, of course, it'll be really easy to check if the wire's cutting in when it's in the ground because you're going to be checking it every, like, four days. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just kept going uh-huh. and peppering me with these questions that all obvious led to it. At one point, I just said, okay, so what's my alternative if I want the trees to grow faster? He literally took a colander and set it on top of the pot and made, like, his, he just raised his eyebrows like, what, like, this isn't good enough? Huh. I'm like, well, what if I need more than that? He put her on top of a second pot. Uh-huh, He's right. like, you can stack calendars. You can stack the pots. Yeah. He said, no, it won't be as good in the ground, but you can move it. You can wire it. You can prune yeah. it. He's like, there's so many options. And that's what we saw at Onuma's house. Yeah. So Dylan and I visited um, this wonderful place in Shizuoka where this oh guy, you know, kind of the madman of growing, uh, spent the day really showing us around. It was actually a fun day. We saw really nice Adam Toth in the morning yeah. at um, Taiga Urshibata's nursery. And then we zipped out for, uh, we didn't know it at the time, boar soup over made over an open flame. Oh, an open flame in an enclosed space, no less. Yeah, we could barely see each other six feet away because there was so much smoke in that little <laughs> My hovel. eyes were burning, I couldn't breathe. Yeah, that was their workshop slash man cave. I'm not totally sure what that, uh-huh. what that room was used for, but... Uh, yeah, but we spent the day literally just asking him questions yeah. about how he grew stuff, and he and his friends were just happy to answer yeah. every last question we Super could try nice to guys. turn into Japanese. That boar soup was delicious. It was amazing. And then they treated us to sake. Oh, that's right. That's when we went back to his house and checked out his artwork. Yeah, we did not see that coming. Yeah, he gave me a whole a whole uh, tube of his dra- drawings. I, still I think have I have the other 200 of them. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of those things. This is a creative man. That's fantastic. Um, and so that, that, that was a fun experience where we got to do a whole lot. But to come back to the container thing yeah. is that's when I kind of learned from Daisaku that, yeah, there's multiple ways to skin a cat. And so if you've got land, fill up the land and do them in the ground. But yeah. know what you're getting into. And so yeah. Yeah. the real lessons he was saying is not don't grow in the ground. He's saying this is what growing in the ground looks like. You're going to have to have these things far apart. You're going to have to give them very regular attention. Don't think this is a set it and forget it type activity. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want quality, it's going to take high touch. And most of our historical growers in the U.S. have been great at growing on and not great at high touch growing. And there are just so many things to consider when ground growing. A tree can get big faster than you would imagine. It can get to the point where you're not going to get it out of the ground faster than you, than you would Like surprisingly really fast. I remember I got uh, some of the first ground-grown trees I ever got from you were those cork oaks. Yeah. Those grew so fast. So fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but on the more philosophical side, it's really wonderful to be down on the earth with the mushrooms and the centipedes and the field mice and you're down there with the plant that you planted there five years ago and it really gets you in the moment it really gets you in tune with nature and the ground that you're working and the seasons it's 
it's a really nice experience, but it's really hard on the body. It's hard on the back and hard it's on the knees. Hard. But yeah, it's true. It's funny. The closer we can communicate with the trees, yeah. the better off the trees are for it. It's harder on our bodies, but yeah. always the trees benefit from that interaction. I love it. I love it. I love getting up close and personal with it. It's funny. I heard that just yesterday from a guy and just a few weeks ago talking with uh, Cesar Ordonez, who uh, was here helping out in the garden. We did uh-huh. a chat for the podcast and he said, what gave him the bug for bonsai? It's when he realized an entire day had passed and he hadn't realized how much time had passed. So that's it. And he's like, that's it. Oh, wait a minute. I want to do this again tomorrow. Yeah. 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 Feeling like I, I could do this every day and be happy doing it. And... Yeah. I've been surprised that even doing it every day, I'm with each passing year, I'm a little more enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Yeah. You seem to have a, a boundless, uh, endless amount of energy and passion. And it's clearly a defect it. of some sort or another. Are we, is there something wrong with us? A hundred percent. No one would deny that. I always call the bonsai community like weirdos and maniacs and because that's kind of what I consider myself. <laughs> like the nicest group of people yeah. you could find. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, they're uh, pick a spectrum and you'll find bonsai people yeah. on one end and the other end of it. Yeah, and I've, I'm not necessarily the most social person in the world, but I've really enjoyed meeting people from all over North America and Japan. And it's just a really nice community of people to be with. It's a supportive community. Yeah. yeah. Now, you are you still considering vending at the expo next year? I would really like to, yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So we'll have that going. You've got a year and change for that. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I'll have more stuff coming out of the ground. Well, November's kind of early, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. That's right. Otherwise, it will literally be this winter. So maybe those, whatever, some of the more fancy stuff you pull out of the ground this season that could be worth keeping in a container for a year so it's rooted Mm -hmm. in, that would be another option too. Yeah, if anything that I harvest this year doesn't sell, I can, you know, grow it on in pots and present it. We're looking last weekend of October. That's our current uh, Okay, so even a little bit earlier. Yeah. Once once all the contract and all that stuff is all done, we'll be sharing that. But that's what we're looking at right now. Well, that would be super exciting. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for coming and chatting about all this stuff. Well, um, many thanks to you, Jonas. And I just want to say you've been a really good friend to me over the years. And you've done many, many nice things for me. And I really appreciate it. I really enjoy being your friend. And um, you're doing a lot for the bonsai community, too. And well, I just you. would like to recognize that. Well, thank You're you so much. You're making a huge contribution. If it can do anything but, uh, or I should say, if it can do nothing but inspire people like you to make more trees, then yeah. that's a happy thing. So yeah. yeah. Very happy to hear that. Thank you so much. And I will have uh, notes about how to get in touch with Dylan in the show notes. Dylan? Sounds good. Thanks so much for chatting. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. music on today's podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at blue dot sessions check them out at www.sessions.blue